The Connecticut Music Oral History Podcast is a deep dive interview series with musicians, artists, conduits, collectors, and dedicated fans, focusing on 20th century Connecticut music history. This project preserves narratives, heralds unsung movers and shakers, and defines Connecticut's influential role in cultural history. I'm your host, Brendan Toller. I'm an artist, a musician, a filmmaker, and marketing manager of the incredible Verso Studios at the Westport Library, where this very podcast is being produced. Verso Studios is a media resource and production hub, serving as an inclusive, empowered, future-forward cultural and learning center. A library branch of the 21st century, Verso Studios provides programming, commercial services, as well as educational and content creation opportunities. We have a state-of-the-art hybrid analog recording studio designed in part by Rob Froboni, the same guy who built Keith Richards' home studio down the road. We record bands, artists, audiobooks, podcasts, and everything in between. We have video production suites, classes, and events. Check us out at the Verso Studios website and on social media. Liz Galorn is a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and multidisciplinary artist based in Shelton, Connecticut. She is of the same musical school as Laura Veers and Kristen Hirsch, with a little Emmylou Harris thrown in. Dreamy, lyric-driven, melodically interesting, and undefinable. She calls her genre of music avant-twang. Liz is the staple of the present-day Connecticut music scene. Here's our conversation bookended by two tracks.
Um, all right, let's jump right into it. So what was your first musical memory? My first musical memories are of watching 70s TV at my folks' first house. Um, there was a lot of weird um, musical stuff on TV. And we had a piano and my mom had a guitar. And I would just pick out TV theme shows on the piano by ear. So like three years old, just going over to the piano and picking out whatever was on TV. Um, and uh, my mom had an amazing record collection and would put on Beatles records and we'd just kind of dance around the living room listening to the Beatles. So That's magic. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Trumbull. Mm-hmm. So you've always kind of been Connecticut-based. Yeah. 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 And then when did when did it really go into uh <laughs> you know you, we always have the the first initial exposure to mu- music and then it's like the 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 bug bites you right i think it was joan jet i love rock and roll 1981 um i had that record on vinyl and i was like it, this could be a possibility for me and um i took piano lessons as a little kid and it never really stuck because i'm I'm so ear dependent. Um, My mom always picked out and would explain to me what was going on in the backgrounds of all the recordings. Okay, this is the bass. This is the guitar. And she would have me listen very intensely. So I I had a sense of what music was made up of. And in piano lessons, my teacher would get frustrated with me because I never wanted to read the music. I would just play by ear. For the longest time, I thought there was something wrong with me that I'd never be able to write music if um, I couldn't read it. And then I realized that in rock, you don't you don't have to write notes. You can... it, it seems so long for the old guard to like, you know, let go of that reading music thing. I know how to read music, you know, a little bit, but um, yeah there's such a rigid um i think that's changing now but there there even when i was growing up there was such a rigid of what music and what learning music is you know yeah um really i so i took piano lessons for a long time um knew i had music in me and my younger brother um my younger brother and i were very musical and uh Let's see. I started taking violin lessons in junior high school and then banjo. And I met Richard Neal, Dick mm-hmm. Neal, who would play with James Velvet. And he plays with a lot of folks now. 
um, took banjo lessons and guitar lessons at Diderio Music, which was at the Trumbull Mall at first and then moved to Stratford. And Dick was involved in the New Haven scene and explained to me how things worked with local bands. And uh, my parents would follow around Bad Bob, which was one of the bands he played in. And um, I think the first show I ever saw at the Anthrax was Bad Bob. What what were they like? (sighs) They were kind of spiritual, literary, indie, um, jangly guitar stuff. And... um, we just appreciated having a connection to music in a way that made it seem like it was within our reach to make music and then go play it locally. So Dick made it seem possible that you don't have to be a major rock star to play music. You can be a regular, regular local rock star. That's super inspiring, you know? Yeah. Uh, I didn't have that till much later. <laughs> Probably seeing the New Haven scene, I think, you know, for me. Um, so then what, you know, how do you, how do you get to your first record then? <laughs> so I played with some gals in high school and some guys from my textiles class, all the sort of artsy weirdos hung out together and we were like, oh, we all we all kind of play guitar and bass. Let's hang out at my house and write some stuff and play some in excess and cure covers in my parents' rec room. Um, So we did that for a while, just messing around, but we were all so shy and introverted, none of us wanted to sing. I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll sing eventually, but no one would want to take that first step. And sort of on a parallel track to that, my brother bought gear with his paper route money. So he bought a four track, he bought a PA, and he was playing out at 13 years old, um, drums, bass. So eventually I learned how to use the four track and that was my entry into songwriting. When I was in college, I played in a band called the American Pragmatists and we won a battle of the bands and stuff like that. And, you know, I'd get up on stage and didn't sing and played my uh, ES-335 studio Gibson guitar. Um, But then there were these sort of coffee houses that would take place at Fairfield University in people's townhouse basements. And eventually I was like, oh, I'm going to write a song for this and get up and play it. And I hijacked all my shy introverted energy to get up and do it in front of people and that's the way I learned how to tolerate parties in college was to play so after college I really buckled down with the four track and wrote a whole bunch of songs and um, didn't really know what I was going to do with them but hung out in my bedroom with you know a drum machine and my guitars and sang through a Gibson Minuteman amplifier that had great reverb so it sounded like I was at the bottom of a well. And um, eventually a tape of my four-track stuff made it to Jeff Fierzig in Montclair, New Jersey. And um, he was making music for commercials in his house, but he was also a documentary filmmaker. So he had some cool stuff, and he contacted me and was like, would you want to come down to Montclair and work on a record in a sort of piecemeal way? 
Um, I think over the course of a year, I went down maybe once a week. Were you sending tapes out? How how do you think you got the tape? Oh, my um, one of my college friends gave it to him. He worked in a coffee shop, and Jeff was a regular, and said, "Here's this." And by then, had he done uh, "Devil" with Daniel Johnston? He had made the band that would be King. But mm-hmm. Oh right, yeah, half Japanese, half Japanese, yeah, yeah, yeah. cool, yeah. So it was a a really interesting, wild connection to make. Um, someone who knew a lot of music people through the New Jersey scene, and that's how I ended up with. Right, you some played with feelies. some interesting yeah. people, yeah, on that record. Yeah, Stan Demeski, Brenda Soder, and Glenn Mercer from the Feelies, and um, Dean Wareham from Galaxy Five Hundred, and um, Robert Quine. What was he like? Robert Quine was funny and charming and he wore sunglasses the whole session i think jeff drove to the city to get him and he did the session behind a closed door in the other room so i was you know i was so nervous um his part was amazing and left field and clucky and wild something i would have never been able to play so i was just in awe of course i got a heinous migraine while we were recording and then Jeff and I drove him back to the city and just listened to him tell stories about working with Lou Reed and Matthew Sweet and I just wanted to throw up in the back seat. Oh. But I mean it was I was like ah, you know the the magnitude of the situation plus my you know nervous disposition and chronic illness stuff all dovetailed but it it was very memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's amazing. Um, and then, uh, where, where did things go, go from there? I assumed you toured a little bit. I didn't. No. So I sent out a whole bunch of burnt CDs to people Jeff had suggested Mm -hmm. and then, um, found a record label that wanted to put it out and, Stuff happened. I got a lawyer. It seemed like it was going to happen, but then the label folded. Um, they put out one Michael Hurley disc. Well, which one? Oh. You know, there's so many. I'm just such a fan that <laughs> it has weather weather in the title. I don't remember exactly which one. But I could see how you guys are on the same, you know, riverbank yeah. or something. Right. Know, yeah. <laughs> Weirdos so. who've got their own thing going on <laughs> and would be doing that no matter what was happening. That's right. Yeah. So I, but I, at that point, I didn't care. My lawyer was in Westport and he said, at one point said, you're going to take a massive hosing on this. I don't advise doing this. And I was like, okay, all right, we'll put a pin in that. That was over the initial deal. He said that. Yeah. So, you know, we were going back and forth on stuff. And at some point they threw their hands up of the whole business and realized, oh, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea for us to get into had nothing to do with me. Um, but then I sat on the recordings, which were done for five years while I swirled around in what, what do I do? But by then, I um, had joined another band called Jargon Society, and we were playing around Danbury. And I realized I could put out the record myself. So I didn't do that until 2003, but I had other stuff going on. 
And I think it was at the tail end of the last portion of the music industry and the beginning of the digital age so that I didn't have to call people on the phone. I could use email and uh, digital media to communicate with people. And then physical mail send out 300 copies of my CD using the Indie Musician's Bible or whatever and all the record, um, all the um, college radio shows were listed in this thing. So you'd look and update, okay, who's the program director now? So then I'd, or music director, figure out where to send my stuff to and then send it. And I got a bunch of radio play that way and a little bit of press and uh, didn't tour. And that was that. Did Was there a point at which you would have liked to, you know, quote, made it or, or you know? <sighs> I am not an ambitious person. I care about the creative part of stuff. I care about working with other people. I care about opportunities um, and connecting other people with opportunities. But I've always had to pay for my own health insurance, which I need. So the, the option of touring for a long time was never there for me. And maybe if I wanted it, more I would have done it and it doesn't bother me at all every now and then I think gosh I wish I were more irresponsible in my 20s but I had to be responsible so I'm I'm where I need to be that's right yeah yeah um who like growing up who were some of your big influences you mentioned Joan Jett but I know that there's got to be others oh yeah um well, finding Patty Smith was amazing. Um, Velvet Underground, Neil Young. Listened to a lot of uh, weird Smithsonian folkways records I'd get out of the Trumbull Library, like weird sacred harp, obscure um, blues records. Um, listened to a lot of Astrid Gilberto, um, Stan Getz, and... Yeah, Jay Maskus, Kristen Hirsch. Seeing Kristen and Jay play solo and just blow the doors off a dump by themselves gave me the courage to play my music in front of people in any way I wanted to present it with an acoustic or an electric. And like Billy Bragg, solo electric in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Um, well, playing solo is... Definitely more of a trip than playing with a band, a head trip. <laughs> um, I really like my band now and how we work together. So sometimes playing solo is like, oh, I wish those guys were with me now. But, mm. Yeah. Was the nervousness of it uh, hard to overcome for a while? I mean, I know for me, like, I, you know, I loved music ever since I was, you know, probably five six seven but uh to sing in front of my friends uh I, I mean I was even in chorus and acapella but but, but to sing outside of mm -hmm. that in front of my friends oh boy no no too too nerve-wracking for me was it like that yeah definitely yeah. I I remember the first couple gigs I played where I sang my very first gig like with a full set with me and a drummer um my own songs was at the urban jungle which was Fernando's place before the tune-in. 
Um, and it was like having an out-of-body experience because I heard my voice coming out of my mouth and the reverb in the room, but it felt like it was not me doing it. So I just channel something else when I perform and um, sometimes I'm nervous and sometimes I'm not. But, you know, when I was a kid, I would have completely freaked out. I was the kid who would freak out and call in sick for school um, when oral reports came around. I was like, no, I am not. I opt out. Now I wish I had had those skills. Someone had walked me through how to do that, how to talk in front of people. Um, but, I, you know, usually I don't have a problem on stage now. Uh, something else takes over and you're like, yeah, I know how to do this. I've been doing it for a really long time. So <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, so after the Jeff album comes out, is there is there a new configuration, a new set of collaborators, a band? Do you go solo? So around the time I actually put the record out, was when I started going to the Space Open Mic in Hamden. And I met a whole bunch of people. Um, one of them was Chris Lowe, who was doing booking there. And he said, why don't you put a band together to play this record? Because I was just me. And I was like, well, I had never thought about going back and sort of forensically playing this arrangement, which was never meant to be played by people altogether. So um, Peter Riccio from the Sawtells and Julie Riccio from the Sawtells and uh, Pete Brunelli, who was in the Sawtells then, they became my backing band. And then Chris Lowe played, a, played keyboards and accordion. And we played a bunch of shows, mostly at the space, um, but there were some other gigs like at um, Art Space. And, and we had a really good time. Um, it was interesting and challenging to work a band and manage people's personalities and um after that I, well yeah we played at club helsinki once um, where was that that was in hudson new york mm. um and then eventually that sort of died out and i continued to play with peter sautels on drums and you know, he's basically been my drummer for the last 20-whatever years. Um, and we had been in Jargon Society together. Um, then I morphed into another configuration. My brother played bass for a while, Peter on drums, and then uh, a guy named Ryan Blessy played guitar and lap steel. Um, and then things happened. <laughs> and... It, it took me 10 years to write the songs that became Winged Victory. And I became really afraid of going into the studio. I think because during recording the Jeff record, I was very nervous about the whole process because I had, I had done a few things in studios before with other bands, but never my own thing where I had to drive two hours, work with a stranger, meet all these different people, and try and get what was in my head out um, or what was already on my four track recordings out into a you know bigger digital format or it was actually a hybrid of analog and digital um so yeah so these songs sort of formed and i was terrified and then eric lichter from dirt floor 
contacted me and said, hey, w what would you think about working with me to do another record? All of a sudden, it felt way more possible, and I could record in any way I wanted to, in whatever order I needed to, to make it make sense for me. I thought previously I had to follow somebody else's idea of how you're supposed to make a record. Once I took ownership of that, it became an effortless, fun process. And did you take ownership of it, or Eric sort of I was did. like, you could, you know? No, yeah, it, it yeah. was just kind of like, oh, okay, boom. I think I had a dream. I had a dream that basically I was at the end of a gestation period. I don't have kids. I was like having this record baby. I was like, oh, I'm almost there. This, this could be done. And it's in the realm of the possible. So my brother um, played bass on it. Um, Peter Riccio played drums and we recorded most of the basic tracks in two days. Um, and that's in, that was in Chester, Connecticut, where Dirt Floor is. And um, then I would go back and record overdubs and vocals and more guitars. And I had some guest people play on it, like Dave Hogan, who I had played with in the Grimm generation, and uh, Jeff Chen on cello, and um, Steve Aceta and uh, Tim Kane on horns. And it came together over, you know, five months or so. It's fast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's your song writing uh, method like if you could go into it or if you want yeah, to? Sure. Yeah, sure. I write mostly in my head and sometimes actually most often the music and the words are sort of fused together so everything gets written at the same time i do um deviate from that sometimes um like in 2019 i was at a robin hitchcock show at fairfield theater company i wrote the lyrics for a song in my head and then went home and played it i was like what the hell did you just do that's very unusual for me but well, he's so inspiring. Totally. <laughs> yeah. His brain is connected all over the place. And, and the way he, you know, monologues between songs. I wish I were that effortless. But it's such a delight to watch. And, um, yeah, so I, I just love words. And I collect snippets of stuff. A lot of times people will see me at a show and I'll have my journal out and just doodle something down that, I thought of and um you know like what are you what are you doing over there well you know people say funny stuff I want to write it down <laughs> things I miss here um quotes we've got such an interesting group of people around here people are always saying things that make me think of other things and I want to remember possible song titles that are inspiring so mm. And is there a steady diet of inspiration, you know, music, art, poetry, reading that yeah. you're kind of always submersing yourself in? Yeah. It's, as an artistic person, I think I'm never not on in that way. There, there are definitely times when I'm fallow, and I think those times are necessary. There are lots of times where I don't write a song for several months. And occasionally it feels like mu musical constipation. And I feel like, oh, my God, if I don't write a song, I'm going to flog myself. And um, 
But then I realized once I do start writing songs again that I was collecting information that whole time and little things come together. And really, that's even how my first and second records came together. Little bits of things I had been pocketing away for years came together and became songs. What do you think motivates you? Because I know for some people they need they need like a purpose or like almost like, a, you know, that other competitive band member to kind of, you know, kick them to... to get the work done I'm driven just by the creative spirit and the process I'm a process nerd so I want to know how stuff is done how stuff is made how to play different instruments I play a lot of stuff kind of okay I mean the guitar is my main instrument but I play banjo and lap steel too I just I just love to hear music to play it with other people um I'm driven to finish songs by, you know, having an upcoming show. Like, oh, I should finish that thing I've got almost in the bag so I can bring it to Peter and Eric and we can nail it into a form that people might recognize as rock and roll. <laughs> um, I was able to bring some new songs to the band this year. I think I wrote way more this year than I had in the last five years. There was a lot of time to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, 2020, I wrote a couple. And even just doing a couple felt like a win because it was very hard, as most people know. Um, the uncertainty was too much for me. Even if there was more time, I don't know that there was um, because I was working in person as of May 20th of last year. Um yeah, the uncertainty was a little too much for me. But starting in January, things looked a little more hopeful-ish. And uh, that's when things started picking up for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, then I assume the band keeps morphing. We've been pretty stable since 2013. Mm -hmm. Um we had Julie Beeman playing keyboards for a little while. That was really great. She was on keyboards and organ. And the power trio format works for us um, as far as getting people together and learning songs. And Peter and I have played duo sometimes as well with just drums and guitar. And, you know, keeping it flat duo, Jets, punk rock style. Um, I like to return to that because it's lean and I could go anywhere and he'll follow me because he's a jazz trained drummer. Um, but Eric is amazing too. I can completely mess up my songs and Eric will be right behind me. Like, Oh, I, I don't know what chords those are. Eric's right behind. Um, very responsive. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but right now the trio is working. Mm. Yeah. It sounds great. Um, Talk about the New Haven uh, music scene a little bit because I think sure. it's, it's pretty special. Yeah, so I started hanging out in New Haven probably around 2001, 2002 when I would go to the Space Open Mic in Hamden. And um, I met a lot of people there who are still my musical compadres like Jen Dauphiné and um, Paul Balbusti of Mercy Choir and... Um, Frank Cretelli and I met James Velvet and the Cavemen Go were playing. It was just ripe for collaboration and um, 
I found people to play shows with. I found people who I wanted to play on my bills. We we all kind of exchanged um, exchanged information and ideas. And uh, then I ended up playing at Cafe Nine, and it's become my musical home base ever since. Um, I those are really my two main main places that I would play. There was also a place called Elm City Java that had great shows in their downstairs area. They had Panini, and then downstairs you'd play a little festival or something. We played lots of shows there. Um, one show I played, I came outside, there was toast on my car. I, it was the toast of New Haven. Uh, ridiculous. Um, Books and Company um, on Whitney Avenue had shows. Frank Cratelli was booking a series there. And the diverse musical options um, just kept me interested. I had come from... Uh, well, I was living in Danbury from 2000, nope, wait, 1998 to 2009. And that's its own scene. That's uh, its own scene. So we had a Danbury scene that was very vibrant, and that's where I played with Jargon Society at Hat City Alehouse. We had the Empress Ballroom and Heirloom Arts Theater, Seattle Espresso. XCI. That's pretty WXCI, nice one of the greatest yeah. college radio stations in Connecticut. Hopefully they can remain independent. Um, so, you know, from going to college at Fairfield U, Danbury seemed like a vibrant place to go and play music. And I, there was jazz every night, like free scrunky jazz. What? Art gallery, coffee shops, all that has changed now. None of that stuff. Not a single one of those things is still happening. Um, but then eventually we all started sliding toward New Haven and I would, you know, drive along Route 34 from Danbury to go play. Like, ah! Um, yeah, it's a long slog at one in the morning, but you get used to commuting for fun. In Connecticut, it's not very far. People in the Midwest have it far worse than we have it. Um, we've got so many little pockets of interesting stuff going on all the time. Yeah, so what? An hour drive, whatever. Um, yeah, so New Haven. <laughs> um, another thing that, you know, I think is really great and admirable is I, I always see you out at totally different shows, especially new bands. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not like you're just going to see your friends. Like, you really actively check out new stuff. I'm trying. I'm trying. I I want to do it even more next year as things get less stressful, <laughs> I hope. Um, but yeah, I'm doing it now because I get so much energy from live music. Last winter, I got super depressed, not from not being, well, a little bit from not being able to play, but really from not seeing literally anyone play music. At the space open mic, some of the people, other people thought were awful. I would be completely grooving on whatever message they were delivering. If someone is honestly communicating their feelings, that is the best thing I've ever seen. And I 
I find delight in that over and over again. So as soon as things opened up this year and Hank Hoffman was having stuff at Best Video, I was like, yes, outside shows early. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Then Cafe Nine opening up again and those Sunday matinees, um, essential for my mental health. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that if I go off some, you know, the don't listen to music for a while, or there's that study that says like it's 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 like withdrawal from, you know, it's... Uh, yeah it's um yeah it's been a weird year to have that kind of tamped down i mean at least it's here a little bit but um but it's extra fun then when you go to a show and you're seeing mighty moon chew you you've been inside for months and all of a sudden you get the top of your head blown off you're like this is the best thing i've ever seen this is the evelyn gray just okay let's do this saw a show at the beer um couple weeks ago I was like a new venue I am in a different place somewhere I don't normally go seeing people I've never seen before um it it just feels great Mm. and what I wish we could do is to invite more people into the scene who aren't other musicians to get regular folks to treat local music the way they do local vegetables at a farmer's market like all right the dirt's still on the carrot. You want the music with the schmutz still on it. You want it dripping and throbbing with the heart juice of whoever made it. And that's how I love it. I, I Maybe I'll be the Alice Waters of uh, musical cuisine in Connecticut. Here, taste this dirty, delicious thing. Well, yeah. How, how do you do it? I don't know. know. I'm, that's, I'm always thinking. I... I had more energy a few years ago to book like large multi-band things. Paul Balbasti and I did a thing called Wobbling Roof Review for Fridays in March of 2016, which he then continued on to Mercy Choir and Friends. And we had an enormous amount of people playing at once or on the same bill in Never Ending Books. Everyone crammed in there. It was so much fun, but it was also so exhausting. I have to learn how to pace myself a little bit better so I can still, you know, bring people together without somehow ruining myself in the process. Eh. Yeah. Um, I'll rest up this winter, see what I can mm-hmm. rustle up. Will you talk about Paul? I mean, he's, he's seems like one of your close friends and he's yeah. so prolific and I think it's a so little inspirational daunting. to yes. us all. Yeah. Yeah. Paul and I have been, Uh, musical compatriots since those um, open mic days at uh, the space when he was playing with left and right and um, we just respect the heck out of each other's songwriting and um, we collaborated on a little EP in 2013 where we each traded lyrics and then wrote music for it so now we're doing that again for another set of songs and um, we actually wrote like four of them in 2019 and didn't get to record them because of the pandemic. But now we've got a date set for January. So do you have tricks like that? Like the oblique strategy cards or something like that? Or this is kind of exquisite corpse, right? (laughs) Yeah. Paul does. I don't do that so much. I just wait for whatever's happening. I, I have worked with prompts before and it can be fairly effective, but Paul's got basically two books of a hundred prompts that are amazing. And uh, he's a musical thinker, and I appreciate that. So I like working with someone who's intense and uh, thoughtful. 
Yeah. Um, what's your experience been, you know, I'm sorry to genderize like this, but as a woman, you know, in the music I don't know that I am a woman in the okay. music industry. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't see it that way. No, yeah. no. I mean, I consider myself non-binary. Right. And there wasn't a word for that when I was little. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, rock star. Okay, that's that could be me. Um, but there weren't words for that. I I have encountered horrible sexism, of course, and pigeonholing. Um, but I also gravitate toward the people who are not like that and who hand me opportunities so that then I can share those opportunities with other people. I, you know, things have happened where, you know, I stopped playing shows wearing a skirt because I got sexually harassed a few years ago. And I didn't realize how badly that show affected me until later. I was like, I don't feel safe. I feel like a cartoon ham. Um, so I want to I wanna feel powerful and like, you know, it's just me and my guitar. I don't want to be made more self-conscious because I'm a woman. It, I just want to play music with my friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that came to mind too, uh, not necessarily on the same subject at mm-hmm. all, but on, you know, that you are so supportive of the artists you like locally i've always seen you go up to people and say that was a really great set or uh you know you're always very um uh instilling confidence in people i think thank you i i just want people to know how much i appreciate their music because it's it's really essential to me and um this musical community means a hell of a lot to me Mm. what's what's on the griddle for you what's on the griddle yeah yeah (laughs) well i mean in the short term i've got my couple last shows of the year and um gonna keep teaching new songs to the bandmates and i want to over the winter start mapping out the next record because i think i've got enough to get started on and i make these little charts of what instruments i think will be on them and I might like some help from some friends who are more arrangery type people to add strings or something like that. And uh, see see what happens. Will you try out a new studio? It seems like you, you do do that each record, which is kind of fun, right? You know, it's like you're going on an adventure. You're not going to the same. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We got to work with Chris Ruggiero a, a bit um, with Sunnyside Down uh, and Tinctoria, and that was fun. That studio, Gold Coast isn't there anymore. But, you know, I, I love trying out different studios. We worked at Bonehead, which is a small project studio in Cheshire. Lots of people work with Tom Boudreau. Had a great experience. I, I just want to try it all. And uh, maybe Sam Carlson, try out there. Maybe try here. I, I want to try, try a little bit of everything. Yeah. Who knows? Every song in a different studio, it's, it's possible. Um, do you have, uh, any kind of daily rituals, like as an artist to, you know, I don't, I don't know, keep yourself inspired or keep your head straight or anything? I journal a bit, but 
you know, like flossing, I don't do it quite as often enough as I would hope. I meditate and I think that helps a lot um, to keep my brain clear of debris. It's not foolproof. <laughs> There's a lot of debris. Um, advice for uh, an artist who doesn't know where to start or how to get started or just, just advice for artists in general, I guess. To just begin <laughs> and not be afraid that it has to be perfect. I think one of the things that stopped me early on or made me more hesitant was like, oh no, this record is an indelible mark upon the world and I can never, you know, repeat this experience and just go in and do it. The next one will be different. Um, Peter Riccio has reminded me of that time and time again. The Sawtells have an enormous amount of songs and records and they're all amazing. And he says, yeah, you're always going to listen back to your record and hear something you wish you did differently. That's what you take with you for making the next one. You don't beat yourself up like, why did we use that reverb sound? You know, because then you listen five years later and you're like, yeah, I like that. All right, I'm not, you know, I'm not freaking out every time I listen to this. Okay. Um, to find mentors and maybe... Mentor is too heavy a word. Find people who are a little bit further along than you as an artist. Did you and do see, that? Yeah, I think with the space open mic, I was finding people who were, you know, or even before that, when I was playing with Jargon Society, Peter Riccio was playing in bands in Boston. He had put out a record with Kramer, um, Elisa, and... Freak Baby had played at various Riot Girl Fests, so they they helped me figure out how to do local music in a way. Um, and then older folks on the scene oper offered opportunities. As much as open mics make me horribly nervous because you only have two songs, you can't warm up, you have to just go and play. They're amazing for networking, and I hate the word networking so much. I hate career i hate networking i hate webinar all those things make a whole lot of sense though if you just divorce them for their from their corporate awfulness you know just sh talking with other people and seeing where they're at honestly um is the best thing as an artist and then going in your little hidey hole and crawling crawling into your alone space where only you can be and letting whatever needs to come out come out without judging it that's the best thing.